hard copy or on your app and your smart device, whatever you can get to to get to the Scripture. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, as we, we continue to work through the life of David, and we are seeing how that uh, just as the people of Israel were chasing a crown, they were looking for someone to give them stability and significance and security. So are we in our lives. We do the very same thing. We chase crowns. We, we look for those things that we believe will provide to us stability and security and a, a measure of significance in our lives. And today we're going to focus in on the presence of God. And, and I've titled the message, The Present of His Presence, because it is certainly a gift to us. In fact, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, there is something within you that wants to experience that cherishes the presence of God. When we're going through difficult times, we want to know that God is with us. When we face uncertainty and the days ahead are unknown, we want to be able to trust in a God who not only knows what's going to happen, He's already there waiting for us. There is great comfort in knowing that the presence of God is within us and that it is working for us. But I want to make a statement about the presence of, about, about the presence of God that I want you to think about that, that we sometimes miss as we think about His presence. And it might surprise you to hear this statement. The presence of God is a double-edged sword. And by that I mean that it can bring great blessing and great peace but it can also bring great judgment and great justice. His presence is a double-edged sword. In fact, we're going to see that today as we read through this narrative, as we look at this important moment in the life of David that teaches us that, yes, his presence is a present, but it's only gifted to us through one person, Jesus Christ. Let's look at our text, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, the ark of... I'll get to it in a second. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, it's very important to get the background. This ark of God, this is the thing Indiana Jones was looking for, right? This is the ark of God, very important thing in the Old Testament. When the people of God left Egypt, God told them to build a box and to overlay that box with gold inside and out. And God said, that is where my presence will dwell with you. In the Old Testament, when you guys are getting out of this, this slavery, you're going toward freedom, my presence will be with you on this ark of God, this ark of the covenant. On 
on top of that Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels, two cherubim that were facing each other. In fact, there's going to be a picture that shows you what that kind of looked like. Again, this is maybe not the exact picture that you see when Indiana Jones, but he didn't find the real thing, so we don't really know. But from the descriptions in the Old Testament, this is what this Ark of the Covenant, look, these two cherubim, important note we're going to come back to in a little while, these two cherubim are facing each other as they cover the presence of God. So what would happen is that they would take that Ark of the Covenant, they would put it into a room in the tabernacle, kind of their traveling church in the Old Testament, and they would put it in this room called the Holy of Holies. Now they had this weird sacrificial system. If you read your Bible in the Old Testament, you read Leviticus, and you're like, what is going on? And it talks about the sacrificial system. And what would happen is that the, the, the chief priest or the, 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 their main preacher, he would once a year go into this Holy of Holies. They would make a sacrifice. He would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat between those two cherubim. And that was symbolic. That was a statement that they believed someone would one day come who would offer a perfect sacrifice so we could have access to the presence presence of God. Well, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the people of God disobeyed him. They got into a fight with the Philistines, and they lost. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy of that battle. They took this Ark to a city called Ashdod. And they placed it in the temple of one of their false gods of war, whose name was Dagon. And when they came back the next day, when the priest, the, the, the chief priest, or the false priest, when they came into that room, Dagon had fallen, that statue had fallen down in front of the ark. So they put it back up. And they came back in the next day, and Dagon had fallen again, and this time his head burst off, as did his hands. So they got a little smart at that point, and they said, look, we need to re-gift this. We need to get, so they sent it to Gath. Gath is where Goliath was from. When they sent it to Gath, the same thing began to happen. And, and what happened is all of a sudden, these tumors started appearing on all the people, and the city was overrun with mice, and many people died. Well, they didn't like that at Ashdod. They didn't like that at Gath. So, so they sent it off somewhere else. They sent it to the town. The same thing happened over and over again. So finally, the rulers get together and say, you know what? This isn't working out too well. Let's send this ark back to Israel and let them deal with it. So they hitched the ark onto a wooden cart. They, they hitched that cart to a cow. The cow heads straight toward the house of a man by the name of Shemesh. He parks there. Shemesh comes out. He kills the cow, offers a sacrifice, uses the wood from the cart to burn the sacrifice, and he has it at his house. People get curious. He's got the ark of God. They come in. And when people would open up the ark of God and look in it, they would die. So he thought, I don't want this at my house. So he sent it to a guy named Abinadab. And it stayed in Abinadab's closet because he had room in his closet, I guess. And it stayed in his closet for about 20 years. David is now beginning to lead these people as king. And David says, I want the presence of God to be among our people. And so Saul 
David's predecessor, Saul, did not long for the presence of God. David did. So David had the ark brought back to where it belonged into his palace. That's where verse 3 picks up. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Asa and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, the presence of God, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of this error, and he died beside the ark of the Lord. That word error in verse 7 is a Hebrew word that means irreverence. David is then going to get mad at God from what he perceived to be a very harsh judgment. Verse 9, or, or verse, yeah, verse 9, and verse 8 rather, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord, how can God's presence come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So look at what's happening. David not only walked away from God, but he also put this ark into the hands of someone who was not of the people of God. Now this brings us to a very important lesson that I want us to focus in on. It's one of three lessons we learn from this narrative. And that lesson is this, the presence of God can pose a problem. That the presence of God can become problematic. You see, the ark is God's presence. The ark brings his blessings. But the problem is that God's presence can also cause a great disturbance. You saw what happened when Uzzah decided to handle the presence of God. It killed him. He dropped dead. Now, this scene that we just read about Uzzah, it creates a tension within us. We've got a problem with this. Let's be honest. Because a lot of us feel like Uzzah was doing God a favor. He was trying to save the ark from hitting the ground. And, and we think maybe God should have thanked us and not killed him. Those tend to be two quite opposite actions and quite drastic in both ways. We think that the punishment is more severe than the crime. We're kind of like David. We're focused on the injustice of it all. But the Bible tells us that that is not true. The punishment is not more severe than the crime. Now, there there's a couple of things happening here that we need to understand when we talk about how the presence of God can pose a problem. You see, God had given specific instructions about how this ark was to be carried in order to avoid a situation just like this. But instead of doing it God's way, the people of God chose to do it the way the Philistines did it, the world's way. Does that sound familiar? 
Instead of doing what God had prescribed to do, they wanted to handle this the way they thought it would be best. And this teaches us, this speaks to how God feels about our approaching him. God decides how we should approach him. God decides how we can approach him. David and Uzzah aren't approaching God in the way that he instructed. Therefore, they did not experience God the way they had expected. Do you hear me? If you aren't experiencing God as you expected, maybe you need to alter your approach to God. But you see, but even even more drastic than that is this truth. That God's presence can pose a problem because Uzzah is unaware of his own sinfulness. Don't don't miss this. We'll blow right by it if we don't pay attention. Uzzah sees the ark about to touch the ground And he wants to protect God's presence on the earth. So he thinks, I should keep the ark from touching the ground because the ground is dirty. What he does not realize is that his hand and heart is dirtier than the earth. See, Uzzah assumes that his hand is less dirty than the ground. But uh, think of it this way. Has the earth ever rejected God's authority? Has God ever said, rain, and the earth go, I ain't raining? Has, has God ever directed the wind to blow north and the wind go, we don't want to go north, we want to go south? Have you ever heard or seen the earth and God argue? The earth only obeys God's commands. It's people like us, it's people like me, it's people like you who resist and work against God's commands. Uzzah doesn't understand this, so he touches the ark. David doesn't understand this, so he's mad at God. Here's the takeaway we have from this big first point. The reason we don't understand the judgment of God is because we fail to understand the wickedness of our sin. I'll repeat that. The reason that we do not understand the judgment of God is because we fail to understand the wickedness of our sin. Well, if God is such a God of love, why would he ever send someone to hell? That seems to be mean. After God creates them, after God puts them on earth, just to let them go to hell. No, exhibit A is the cross. The cross shows us how good God is and at the same time how wicked we are. We are so wicked that we cannot save ourselves. We are so sinful we cannot do enough good to get us into the presence of God. We are so we are so fallen that Jesus had to leave heaven, come to earth, live a perfect life because we could not and die a sinner's death even though he wasn't a sinner, to die a sinner's death in our place instead of us. Our sin is unspeakably wicked, and the fact that we don't see it as wicked is part of the problem. But doesn't that then lead us to a bigger problem? I mean, if the presence of God is a problem, 
How can we hope to experience his presence if our hearts are so wicked? I'm glad you asked the question because it's the second truth that we learn. The solution to the problem of God's presence is found in the power of the gospel. How can a wicked person come into God's presence? How can a sinner like me, someone who has a PhD in SIN, someone like you whose sin comes natural to us, how can we, being so wicked and fallen, hope to come into the presence of God? The solution is in the gospel. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Odom-Edom and all his household. So it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David's faith is rekindled. Verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now they're handling the ark. Notice they didn't touch it. They were transporting the way that God said it should be done. They're handling the ark God's way. And instead of the presence of God bringing judgment and justice, now it brings them blessing. It's no longer a burden when they handle it right. It becomes a blessing to them. And notice what verse 13 tells us, that David offered sacrifices. God had provided a way for his presence to be among his people. That blood that was sprinkled on that mercy seat was a reminder that God would one day send a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus would die just like Uzzah, but he would not die for his sin. Instead, Jesus would die for ours. And watch this. Watch this connection. When they buried Jesus, they put his body, the presence of God, in a tomb. And and some women went to that tomb to visit. And when they got there, lo and behold, what did they see? But two angels, one standing on one side of the tomb and one standing on the other side of the tomb and between those angels was the presence of God that had been killed, that had died and that was risen to new life to provide a way for us to have access to God. You see, all of our condemnation, God's full wrath has been absorbed into Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, there is not one One single drop of condemnation that is left for you. Let me make it very clear this morning, and this won't win many preaching awards, but I don't have a shelf to put them on anyway, okay? But let me let you uh, be very aware of something this morning. One of two things are going to happen to you when you die because of your sin. Either you will die for your sin eternally, or Jesus will die for it in your place. And what Jesus does solves this problem. 
Because of what Jesus did as our ultimate sacrifice, the way we approach God is now totally transformed. Look, if I could only have a relationship with God based upon on how well I do during the day, I don't have a shot. If I can only have a relationship with God based on how many times I get along with people around me, I don't have a shot. I am rotten, I'm a sinner to my core. And you say, Pastor, how dare you say that? I'll say it about you too. Because you are with me. We're in the same boat. But look at what Jesus did to change all of this. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. He has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. Why? Don't miss this. He's in the presence of God, not for his benefit, but for ours. Jesus entered the presence of God on our behalf and that changes everything because now, according to Hebrews 4.16, because of what Jesus has done, I can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I can receive mercy. I can find grace to help in time of my need. I can come to God boldly. Stop coming into God's presence with this timid, cowardly spirit that you're afraid to ask something big of God. Get in front of God with confidence, with boldness, not because he, he's going to hear you because you've done so good, but because Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Make a bold request at the throne of grace for God. Seek bold and extravagant grace from God. He has it all. He wants to give it, and he can give it through Jesus Christ. We can come into God's presence, not because of how good we are, but because of what Jesus did for us. So the problem is then solved. It's in a relationship with Jesus. But I can't let you go at a quarter after 11. And it's technically not a Baptist sermon if it doesn't have a third point. Or a Baptist seminary approved sermon. So here's the third lesson we learn. The response to receiving the gospel, it will lead us to a life that worships. We had this problem. We could not come into God's presence without facing judgment and justice. And the solution to that problem was for the Son of God to come and to do something we could not do to die for our sins. How do we respond? We respond to that by living a life that worships. Look at chapter 14. And David danced. You know what that, that in the Hebrew, that doesn't mean that he just kind of, you know, did this number. I know it's a Baptist church, but the Bible trumps Baptist. You know that? And David danced. Cut a rug. Did a jig. I don't know if it's line dancing. I know he was a lot more excited than a lot of you are every Sunday. And David danced, it said. He danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Some scholars think that means nothing there at all, but I think he's got his fruit of the looms on. That's all he's wearing. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, 
with the sound of the horn. Look, when they got God's presence among them, it wasn't time for a funeral. It was time for dancing. It was time for shouting. It was time for celebrating because God's presence, God was with them. And God is life. He's not death. God is exciting. He's not dull. God is everything. And they get into God's presence and they can't help respond. But there's a wet blanket in the room. Verse 16 tells us, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel's, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. I tell you, we're reading through, and you read about him dancing and you go, that's not Baptist. But then they had food, and you go, there, it's a Baptist. There it is. <laughs> Only I didn't say anything about chocolate pie, but it did get the word cake in there. Look at what happens. Saul's daughter, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Saul's daughter says to David, her husband, you look like more of a fool than a king. Saul was always concerned about how he looked and what other people thought about him. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Verse 21, and David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. You ain't seen nothing yet, honey, he's saying. And I will be more abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in high honor. Look at what David's saying. David is saying, look, God chose me when I was nothing. And now that I'm something, I'm going to show others that it's because God is something in me, not that I'm something in myself. And oh, to God, that that would be my attitude and my disposition and yours every single day to realize that we are absolutely nothing. And that when God, when something great comes from our lives, it's only because it's God. And so let's not make it about us. Let's make it about him. The biggest difference, one of the biggest differences between Saul and David is that Saul wanted a big deal to be made about him. David wanted God to be a big deal. And David said, if I have to be humiliated to bring God glory, I will become more contemptible than this. I will be humiliated for this. Listen, there is only one person who can be large in your life. It's either you or it's God. If it's you, guess who it can't be? God. Okay, that's a question, folks. <laughs> Let's back up. I have nothing to do the rest of the day, and I can lock the doors. <laughs> Only one person can be big in your life, you are God. So, 
If you are the one who gets the glory, who doesn't? God. If you're the one who's large in life, it can't be God who is large in your life. And one of the ways David made this big deal out of God was through his worship. This was his response to the gospel. And our response to the gospel should be worship. And in fact, it is. But listen and hear me clearly this morning. Worship isn't just what we do in here. It's in how we live. Worship is in how we spend our money. Worship is in what we do with our time. Worship is in the values that we embrace. Worship is the values we seek to pass on to others. So let me ask you this question. What does your worship tell other people about the value that you have placed upon God? The reality is this. The life you live seven days a week reveals much more clearly the value you place on God than the hour that you set in here. And when you believe the gospel, you become the gospel. And the gospel begins to be lived through you for the glory of God and the good of others. The presence of God is within you, and it comes out of you. But don't miss the last verse, verse 23. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Hang, hang, think with me for just a second. God responds to Michal's mocking David's worship by closing her womb. Now, a few chapters later, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, David has an affair. He takes advantage of, saying an affair is not fair to Bathsheba because he takes advantage of her, and in fact, he uses her, and she is a victim. Yet from Bathsheba's womb would come a child by the name of Solomon. And that child, the crown of David, would be passed to him. And eventually from that child, the crown would be passed to Jesus Christ. So think of it in this way. Between adultery and being embarrassed at worship, which sin would be worse? David's sin of committing adultery or Michal's sin of making fun of David's worship. Well, I think David's sin would seem to carry a greater guilt. But see, what's being taught to us, I believe, is that God can forgive any sin and he can make any sinner beautiful so long as that, center, that sinner comes to God on God's terms. We see, as again, we'll see in a few weeks after David messes up his life, he then goes and seeks forgiveness. Michal never sought forgiveness. And the story of her life that's left for us to see is her suffering the consequence of sin. And we see David receive forgiveness, not because one's better than the other, but because David sought God's forgiveness. We see, it's not your call, it's not my call as to how you approach God's presence. 
Uzzah's choice and its result reveals that to us. We have to come to God on God's terms. But as we try to put a bow on it, let me frame it in one other way for you to think about. At the very beginning, we said that the blessing of the presence of God is a double-edged sword. It can bring to our life blessing, or it can bring to our life judgment and justice. You know why? Because there's coming a day that every single one of us will stand in the presence of God. The death rate among humanity is trending at about 100%. For every person who is born, that person eventually dies. And the book of Hebrews tell us, tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that death to face judgment. Every single one of us in this room, every single member of your family, every friend you have in real life or on Facebook, every person with whom you work, every person that lives around this church, in this city, this kind of state, this nation, this world. Every person who has lived, is living, or will live, every person must stand in the presence of God. When this life is over, I don't know what God's going to say to you when you stand in His presence. I do know based on Scripture what he's going to say to me. He's going to pronounce blessing over me. He's going to let me pass from eternal death to eternal life. And you know why? Not because I'm a preacher. I'm fully convinced there's going to be preachers in hell. Not because I come to church. I know there are church people, I think I pastored a few, who may be in hell. Not because I read my Bible X times a day or X days a week or X minutes in a day or anything else. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 tells me that there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, not those who read their Bible every day, although you ought to read your Bible every day, not those who pray an hour a day, although you need to pray an hour a day, but that's not what causes the condemnation to pass over you. It's being in Jesus Christ. So this morning, in this moment, although I firmly believe that you ought to be baptized, and I firmly believe that you ought to be engaged in church, and I, I fully believe that you ought to engage in spiritual disciplines, I'm not asking you any of that right now. What I'm asking you at this moment is, has there ever been a time that you simply trusted that Jesus has done it all? That you came to him with your sin. As we sing about this morning, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Has there ever been a time in your life when you came to God in prayer and simply said something like this, Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. I agree. God, I confess to you my sin. 
But God, I believe that you sent your son and that he lived a perfect life and that he died on the cross not for his sin but because of mine and that you brought him from death, from that grave to life, never to die again so that now he has the power to give me eternal life. Lord, would you save me from my sin? Will you be my Lord and Savior? Has there been a time in your life when you've offered, not those exact words, but from your heart, something like that to God? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Has that been your commitment? If you say, Pastor, I've never made that commitment, I have some great news for you today. You can make it right here, right now, right where you sit. You don't have to jump through a hoop. Jesus hung on a cross. You simply pray. You talk to God as best you know how from your heart and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've already made that decision. What is your next step? Having made that most important foundational decision is your next step to, to testify to that, whether it's through baptism or whether it's through going and speaking to someone else about what Jesus has done for you. Has God brought you to this local church to become plugged in to the ministry and mission? Because we cannot do what God has called us to do without you. We can't do it without you. Will you join God in his mission today? To expand his kingdom for we all must appear before him and when I appear before him I don't know that I'm going to receive any pats on the back or applause but I think I know I know for a fact I'll receive passage from this life to life in his presence because of what Jesus has done for me and my prayer is that you would leave here today in that same way in just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. As we sing this song, this is an opportunity for you to respond to God. Maybe you need to respond to God right where you sit. Maybe you need to pray and ask God to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe there's something else God's placing upon your heart. You can do that in your pew. This altar is open. You can come to this altar and do business with God. If you've made a decision, and you want to share that, you can come down and share with me your decision, and, and we'll rejoice with that together. I don't know what God's placed upon your heart today, but I simply challenge you to put your yes on the table to whatever God's calling you to do at this moment. Father God, I'm thankful that Jesus came and died for me, the chief of sinners, and that through his death, I can't have life. What amazing grace. Thank you for this cross where this blood ran red and was spilled for my sin. Have your way and your will in my life in this moment, in the life of everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.